Have you ever thought much about those verses that Howard just read for us? I mean, honestly, have you ever really thought about them? Have you ever really sat down and just thought about what they're describing? Have you thought about what's actually going on in those verses? They're weird. You know, the Ascension, I reckon it's like the forgotten chapter of Easter. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about Christ's death and his resurrection, and that's good and right. They're very big. They're very important things. They're like the turning point in the history of the world, right? But I reckon the Ascension, it often gets overlooked. Like, it doesn't even get much of a mention in the Gospels at all. And when it does come up, well, it just raises a whole lot of questions. Like this one, right? What did it look like? I mean, Jesus was there with his hands raised, blessing them. Did he just get carried, you know, sort of straight up? Did he somehow swing onto his stomach and watch the disciples disappearing into the distance? Did he look up into the heavens and see the clouds approaching? What did it look like? What about this one? Over in Acts, which Al read for us earlier, Luke says that the disciples were watching him go, and as they were watching him, I mean, they saw him go, but as they were watching, was there anyone else around? Presumably there would have been people around about. Did they see him go as well? Like were there people on the surrounding hillsides seeing this little guy going up off in the distance, up into the clouds? Could other people even see him? Was he raised with a body? A a straightforward reading of Luke 24 seems to suggest he was. I mean, earlier Luke went to pains to make sure that we knew he was raised to life with a physical body. He walked and talked with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, didn't he? And when he appeared to them all together, they saw his hands and feet, they saw his wounds. He asked for some fish and he ate it. He was raised to life with the physical body. And now it seems as though with the exact same physical body, he was carried up into heaven somehow. So presumably if there were other people around, they would have been able to see him. How long did it take? Was it slow? Was it fast? Did he sort of pick up speed as he got higher? How high did he go? Could he still breathe up there? Did it matter? I mean, it probably did. If he had a physical body, he would have needed air to breathe, right? Did he get cold when he got to the clouds? I mean, over in Acts again, Luke says that the disciples watched him go and a cloud came and hid him from sight. That's a weird little detail to put in, isn't it? Like, was it just a cloudy day with heaps of clouds around? Was this some sort of freak cloud that came and hid him? Maybe Luke wants us to think of something more. Remember back in the Exodus? God was with his people, the Israelites, in a pillar of cloud, wasn't he? And remember when they built the tabernacle? A cloud came and filled it. And remember a similar thing happened when King Solomon built the temple? A cloud came and filled the sanctuary, the most holy place. And remember the transfiguration? That was the time when Jesus was there on the mountainside with Moses and Elijah, that time when Peter, you know, he wanted to build some tents for them, a cloud came and enveloped them. You see, the Bible builds up this picture that the cloud is a kind of symbol for the God's presence. And so maybe that's what we're supposed to think of here. Maybe we're supposed to think, now Jesus is back with God. He's back with his Father. He's finally back with the one who sent him. Maybe that's what the cloud's about. But then again, maybe Luke's got some kind of son of man thing in mind. Do you remember the Old Old Testament book of Daniel? Back there, this guy Daniel, he had a vision. He had a dream of one like a son of man. And do you remember? This son of man was coming 
on the clouds of heaven. And he came on the clouds of heaven and he approached the Ancient of Days. He approached God and he was given authority and glory and so, uh, sorry, sovereign power. He approached God and he was given a kingdom and a dominion that will never end. Maybe that's what we're supposed to think of here. Maybe this is some kind of reverse or preparation for the coming of the Son of Man. In Acts, uh, Luke said that in the same way that Jesus went, hidden by a cloud, the same way he'll come back. Maybe we're supposed to wonder, is Jesus the Son of Man? Is he going to come back on on the clouds of heaven? Is he going to be the one who's going to rule forever? What about this, right? What about this question? If you went outside now, right, and you looked up into the sky at just the right time and just the right angle, could you see Jesus? Would you see his body there floating around, weaving in and out of the clouds? If not, then where is he? Where is he? If he was taken up with a physical body, he must have gone to some kind of physical place, right? Where is it? Why can't we see it? Can we get there? When you really start to think about it, these few verses, four verses, they just raise a whole lot of questions, don't they? Questions that for a lot of them, we're just not given the answers. You see, Luke, he's really one of the only guys who actually tells us what happened. And he only gives us a few verses here in Luke 24 and another few in Acts chapter 1. But in the end, you know, the Bible, it's not really concerned about what happened. It's not really concerned about the physics of it or the biology of it or just how it all worked out. As far as the Bible's concerned, all we need to know is that it did happen. The ascension happened. Jesus has been taken up. He's been carried into heaven. What the Bible's more concerned about, what it's more concerned about is why it happened. Why did he have to go? Why did Jesus get taken up? Why has he ascended? And of course, what does that mean for us? And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning thinking about. Why did the ascension have to happen? Why did Jesus have to go? Now look, there are three big reasons why the ascension had to happen. And they've got to do with Jesus' threefold office. Now you might have heard of this before, I'm not sure, but Jesus is often spoken of as performing or fulfilling three big roles. Three big roles. And these are roles that were really, really important throughout the history of Israel. These are all roles that allowed God's people, the Israelites, to relate to a holy God. All right? Three roles. So Jesus is often spoken about as being a prophet, a priest, and a king. Three in one, prophet, priest, and king. All very important roles in the history of Israel and all roles that allowed God's people, the Israelites, to relate to a holy God, prophet, priest, and king. Now, the first reason why the ascension had to happen has to do with Jesus' role as a prophet. And this first reason why the ascension had to happen, it's almost counterintuitive. At first glance, it doesn't quite seem to make sense. Jesus left them and was taken up into heaven so that he might be with them, so that he might be with us. What? He left so that he might be with It doesn't make sense, does it? But friends, you know, I reckon the disciples, 
Maybe, just maybe they had an inkling of what was going on here. You see, Jesus, uh, sorry, Luke says that after Jesus was taken away, they went back to Jerusalem with great sadness. Now, that's not what it says, is it? They went back with great joy. You see, Jesus had been taken away with them and they were rejoicing. Now, how does that work? Well, it's interesting that at the end of Matthew, there's no mention at all of Jesus being taken away. Instead, it ends with Jesus simply saying to the disciples, Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now, how can both those things be true? How can Jesus be taken away into heaven and at the same time he's saying to them, I'm with you always? What's going on? Well, if we cast our minds back even further, you might remember that Jesus actually told them himself that he would be going away. In fact, he went so far as to say, it's actually better for you if I go, it's good for you if I go. But he also told them they wouldn't be left alone. Do you remember what he said? He said, when I go, I will send another. I will send the counsellor. I will send the Holy Spirit. And look, I don't know, it's reading between the lines a bit, but I just wonder if that's maybe why the disciples had this great joy when Jesus was gone. Because they remembered his promise. But look, whether they did or not, we know, don't we? And that's why we can rejoice about the ascension. That's why we ought to rejoice that Jesus is gone, because even though we're separated from him physically now for a while, he's actually with us through the Holy Spirit, and that's a wonderful thing. Because, friends, look, it's the Spirit that inspired the preaching of the apostles. It's the Spirit that inspired Scripture to be written. It's the Spirit that aids our memories as we think about it and read it and remember what Jesus has done for us. It's the Spirit that teaches us and guides us in the truth. It's the Spirit who enriches us, both individually but perhaps even more so as a body, as the church. It's the Spirit that guides the church. It's the Spirit that takes God's truth and makes it effective in the hearts and lives of believers. Friends, Jesus has gone. But we can still rejoice because the Spirit has come. What a blessing that is. And so we ought to rejoice as we read God's word and the Spirit makes us understand and changes us. And we ought to rejoice as the Spirit changes our hearts and makes us believe. And we ought to rejoice as we use the gifts and abilities God has given us by the Spirit to build up his church, to glorify him. Friends, we ought to rejoice as by the Spirit Jesus continues his work as a prophet, his work of bringing God's word to God's people. Look, friends, as people who have the Spirit, the Spirit acting as our great prophet, bringing God's word to bear in our lives, we ought to be people who delight in God's word. We ought to be people who love to read it, who love to be changed by it, who love to experience the Spirit working powerfully in us through the word. So look, this week, why not do that? Why not seize that opportunity? Why not enjoy God's word? Why not enjoy the Spirit working through you? Next Sunday, we're going to be starting part two in our Isaiah series. It'd be a fantastic thing this week to read through Isaiah. And as you do, pray that the Spirit would make you understand what you read. Pray that the Spirit would change you, that he'd make you love God more as you read. Jesus has ascended. Why? 
Well, at least one reason why is so that the Spirit could come. And because of that, we can rejoice. Now, there's another reason why the ascension had to happen. On the one hand, Jesus went so the Spirit could come, uh, but so he also was carried into heaven so that once there he might intercede for us, so that there in heaven he might intercede on our behalf before God. And look, this has got to do with Jesus' work as a priest. Now, the priests under the Old Covenant, their job was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people so they could be clean, so they could be acceptable to God. And the good news is that Jesus' work as a priest, it didn't end on the cross, it didn't end with his death. The book of Hebrews clearly shows time and time again that Jesus is still acting as a priest. Even now, he's acting as a high priest on our behalf in heaven. He always lives to intercede for those who have faith in him, we're told. Friends, the truth is that even now, right now at this very moment, Jesus continues to present his completed once-for-all sacrifice to God. A sacrifice that means we might receive pardon. A sacrifice that means we might be free from the power of sin. A sacrifice that means we might be free from guilt and shame and condemnation and wrath, instead free to be accepted by God, free to approach him with confidence. Now remember what Luke said back in chapter 24. After Jesus was carried into heaven, the disciples, they went back to Jerusalem. And where did they go? They went to the temple. And they stayed continually at the temple. Doing what? Praising God. Now look, friends, maybe that's a coincidence. But maybe it's not. Look, they went to the earthly temple, a copy and a shadow of the reality in heaven. They went to the earthly temple, a place where priests continually, over and over again, make sacrifices to make the people clean, to make them acceptable to God, and they stayed there and they praised God. Now, maybe that's a coincidence. But maybe we're supposed to see the link between what was going on there in the earthly reality and the the real reality, the greater reality. Perhaps we're supposed to be reminded that even at that time, at the exact same time, Jesus was serving in the heavenly temple, the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, continually presenting his once-for-all sacrifice to God on our behalf, forever making intercession for those who trust in him, pleading for their acceptance, pleading for our acceptance. On what basis? Well, of course, only on the basis of his completed once-for-all sacrifice. Friends, Jesus was carried into heaven. Why? So that there he might intercede for us before God, so that there he might plead for us before God. Praise the Lord. Friends, the ascended Jesus lives even now to continue his work as priest to make us acceptable to God, to make us clean, to make it so we can approach him with confidence. And look, the reality is that uh, through Jesus we can and do already now enjoy intimacy with God. And look, that's a fantastically comforting truth to cling to. And look, I know it's hard, but this week as you struggle uh, with ailing health, as you struggle with old age, with sickness and disease, 
as you battle with loneliness, as you feel the pain of being single, as you feel the hurt of being abandoned and deserted and let down again, as you feel the hurt of loss, as you crave friendship and intimacy, please remember that the ascended Christ is even now, even at that exact moment, interceding before God on your behalf so you can enjoy intimacy with him. Friends, Christ has ascended and so we rejoice because the Spirit has come. And we praise God because he's even now in heaven living to intercede for us. But there's still a third big reason why Christ has ascended. So far we've thought about Jesus' role as a prophet and his role as a priest. And this third reason has to do with his role as a king. Now it's interesting that Luke doesn't tell us what happened after Jesus ascended. But fortunately the writer to the Hebrews does. The reference is there in your bulletin. There in Hebrews it says, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I sort of, I hear that and I immediately think, oh, right, this is it. He's back home with his dad now. It's time to sort of take it easy, kick back and relax, put his feet up, you know, recover a bit. I mean, he's had a pretty rough month since he was arrested back in the garden, hasn't he? But friends, that is exactly the wrong kind of picture for us to have here. This is not a picture of Jesus resting at his father's side. This is a picture of Jesus being given supreme authority, supreme power, authority to govern, power to rule, authority to judge. And in fact, you know, that's the most common way that the ascended Jesus is pictured. As a mighty and victorious king given divine power and authority to rule from heaven. Now, just as a kind of aside at this point, I'm not sure if you've thought much about it, but this idea of Jesus being given authority, being given power, it's a little bit weird, don't you think? I mean, this is God the Son, the one by whom and for whom all things were made. How and why is he now being given authority? I mean, what authority is there that's not already his? Well, look, the key to understanding it, I think, is to realise just who's being spoken of here. As God the Son, without doubt, Jesus certainly had supreme divine authority. After all, Jesus was the Word. Jesus is the Word. The Word by which the world was created. The Word that in the beginning was God. And so, look, having authority... And power, it's not a strange experience to him. In fact, it's just part of who he is. It's part of his nature. That's part of what it means to be God the Son, is to have authority and power. What was strange to him, though, what was a foreign experience to him, though, was being humbled. God the Son, the one by whom and for whom everything was made, the one with divine authority, God the Son, right, he humbled himself. He didn't consider that something to cling to. He didn't consider it something to be grasped. But he took on flesh. He became a man. He shared in our humanity. In fact, God the Son went so far 
as to become the suffering servant of Isaiah. Despised and rejected, mocked and pierced. God the Son became the God-man, the divine human Messiah. And it was as that one, as the humbled one, as the suffering servant, it was as the God-man that, the, that Jesus was given authority. And so now it's this divine human Messiah that's ruling physically from heaven with God-given power and authority. Now in Luke's account, when Jesus was taken to heaven, do you remember the very first thing the disciples did? They worshipped him. They worshipped him. And friends, that ought to be our response too. This is no chump. This is no puppet king to be trifled with. This is Jesus the Christ, the risen and ascended king, seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, given authority and glory and sovereign power, given the right to judge, and he demands obedience. And so this week, as we battle with temptation, we won't give in. We won't give in out of obedience to Christ our King. And so, you know, we won't steal time from work. We won't take an extra 10 minutes from lunch. We won't start 10 minutes late. We won't knock off a bit early and say we've been there for the whole day. We won't look up that dodgy porn site on the internet. We won't watch that unhelpful TV show about revenge or about adultery. We won't flirt with our workmate, with that friend at church, with our neighbour. We won't badmouth one another. We won't give our kids a hard time. We won't disobey our parents. We won't... Look, there's hundreds of things we won't do. But the reason why we won't is because we'll be striving to obey Christ our King. Christ has ascended and so we rejoice because the Spirit has come, don't we? And we praise God because he's now in heaven interceding for us. And look, we ought to worship him too because he's ruling with God-given power and authority right now. Now look, all of this is great, isn't it? It's fantastic. They're exciting truths to be thinking about. But, and I don't know about you, but somehow it just leaves me, all, leaves me feeling just a little bit dissatisfied. I mean, after all, Jesus is still gone, right? And look, it's great that the Spirit's with us. It's wonderful that Jesus is interceding before God for us and it's, it's, it's exciting that he's ruling in heaven, but where does all that leave us? Where does all that leave us now, today? I mean, we rejoice and we praise God and we worship Jesus, but in the end, what's the point? What's the point? Well, friends, the point is... We do those things now partially, poorly often, but we do those things now in preparation for the day when we will do them fully and finally forever. You see, Christ's ascension, it's like his death and resurrection. It's not the end. Jesus died. He was buried. But that wasn't the end. He was raised back to life. The resurrection, that wasn't the end either. He has been taken into heaven 
And as the disciples were standing there watching him go, suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, this same Jesus will come back. He will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Christ has ascended and so we rejoice and we praise God and we worship him. Why? Well, in preparation for that wonderful day when he comes back. Then we'll truly rejoice because we'll no longer be with him in spirit only, but we'll be with him fully and finally and physically in the new creation forever. Then we'll truly praise God because Christ's once for all sacrifice will have achieved its purpose. Then we'll fully and finally enjoy God's pardon. We'll fully and finally be able to approach him with confidence. Then we'll truly worship Jesus because all his enemies will have once and for all been defeated and all things will have been brought under his feet and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is king. We rejoice and we praise God and we worship the ascended king now because he is coming back. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you and we worship you for your love and your mercy and your kindness. We thank you that you've given us your word and we rejoice that you've given us your spirit so that as we read, we might understand what we read. And we might believe and we might be changed and we might glorify you. And Father, we thank you especially this morning for this little bit at the end of Luke's Gospel. Father, it's exciting to think about uh, the risen and ascended Christ. And we rejoice that the Spirit has come to be with us. And we praise you, Father, that even now Jesus lives to intercede for us so we can be acceptable to you. And Father, we worship your Son, Jesus, our King, who even now rules with God-given authority. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.